Imagine that you are doing your weekly shopping, but that the grocery store has made some layout changes to what you are used to. Unbeknownst to you, this is because the government has decided to promote healthy eating by placing fruit and vegetables near the front of the supermarket. Perhaps you're now tempted to grab an apple. If you then decide to buy one, is this your own choice? What if you bought the first thing you saw because you were in a hurry and not because of the health benefits the apple has? These are a few of the many questions that Daphne Trauens considers in her PhD research on behavioural policies at Erasmus University Rotterdam. She is also the founder of Thrive PhD Academy and an advisory board member at the European Commission. Nor is this list exhaustive. In this podcast, our guest Daphne Trauens will discuss the many paths she has been down throughout her career. Hello and welcome to Beyond Philosophy, the podcast that dares to ask what sometimes seems like the biggest question of them all. What on earth am I going to do with my philosophy degree? My name is Joella and I'm a third year philosophy student following the Dutch track at Leiden University. And I'm Malena, a first year MA student of the 3 PE track in philosophy, also at Leiden University. I'm Nas, also a third year philosophy student at Leiden University. I'm one of the editors of this interview. So Joella will be conducting the interview and I'll jump in whenever she misses or forgets anything. Um, most likely somewhere at the end I'll ask whatever question we've got left. And with us today we're happy to have Daphne Trajens. Daphne, welcome to this podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, so Daphne, you've done a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we kind of thought, okay, let's go back to where it all started. So maybe you can start out by giving us and our listeners a sense of your academic background right? Um, and how that kind of shaped uh, yeah. your career. Okay. Well, I started, started with uh, studying law here in Leiden. Um, which I thought was incredibly boring, but my parents were both like both had law degrees, and they told me, "Yeah, if you study law, it's all about language and deeper thinking and like reasons why." I studied that, and I thought that that's not what we do here in like the Dutch law department. We're just you know studying like rule books. So I th- I was terribly bored, and then there was this opportunity to do a minor. And there were two minors. Uh, one was in political philosophy, which had was perfectly aligned with the, the law degree, obviously. And there was the other one, the philosophy of science one, which had made no sense for me, but I thought, this is super challenging. And so I entered like one of these ugly buildings. I think it's one near the Ube. Um, nine in the morning, like class by James McAllister. And <laughs> I loved it. I thought, I'm never going to leave here. Like, never. Okay. <laughs> so this is how it started. And then I started doing the master's in philosophy, officially philosophy of law. But I sent, like, letters to exam committee almost every two weeks to change things in my curriculum. Yeah. So in the end, it wasn't really a philosophy of law degree. I just did a sort of philosophy of science-like degree. Mm-hmm. And then I did my bachelor's actually afterwards. I didn't get the official degree, but I took like, all of the courses. Okay. So I did philosophy backwards. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it all started. And, um, and I, I just got so interested in just reasoning and argumentation and just the role of science in society generally. And I really knew I wanted to continue in academic yeah, in the academia, but just not in the conventional way. So I didn't see myself as this full-time PhD student. So I found like an internship, and from there I tried to create my own sort of dual job. Uh, so I found a part-time PhD position at the Erasmus University, mm-hmm. uh, at the um, um, uh, Institute for Philosophy of Economics. And uh, next to that, I worked for a think tank that was tried to combine entrepreneurship and academia. And that's how I basically started a career in what in the Netherlands we call valorization, which is the most ugly word on the planet. (laughs) But it basically means knowledge utilization and trying to to use science better for economic but also societal purposes. So you did this this course in philosophy and stuff, and then there was something in you telling you, okay, but I don't want to go the, the regular academic route. Yeah. How, uh, what why? Yeah, why? <laughs> maybe also, why? what about philosophy that, that maybe that played a role me in so that? Much. Yeah. yeah. I think for philosophy, it was really, for me, it felt like the first really academic thing that I did, that you really have to think deeper and you have to write so many essays and, you know, you just can't get away with, you know, studying a, a small summary that you pay for and then acing your exam, you really had to put the effort in. 
And then of philosophy, I just like that there are the bigger questions. And what I love about it is that you can look at very big questions that many philosophers would say, oh yeah, they're so theoretical, they almost have no bearing on society. But I like to find that connection and see like how concepts like causation or rationality, how they're applied in practice and then what influence like all these definitions and hidden assumptions have. So that's like what triggered me in philosophy and why I thought not this full time <laughs> is because I did so many extracurricular stuff. I loved organizing and projects and I, I just couldn't do without this one. Just the ivory tower wasn't my thing. And I thought, how about philosophers really contributing to society? And how about me really trying to, to build that bridge between academia and society? And so, yeah, that's what I started um, doing in first instance with entrepreneurs. So I worked on my PhD on the one hand and I worked with entrepreneurs on the other hand. And that was fantastic because I, I could notice how much philosophers can learn from entrepreneurs, but also the other way around. So I think we definitely we want to get into the um, practical aspect of philosophy. Um, yeah. But before kind of getting there, were there also any reactions to maybe by your parents to your decision to, OK, I'm going on to, study to, philosophy. Yeah, to the philosophy? Um, I think my parents were generally excited that for the first time I showed interest in studying. <laughs> so <laughs> the fact that it was philosophy, OK, whatever. <laughs> um, so they, they were happy with that. And. Well, you must encounter that. Generally, people think, what can you do with philosophy? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You just have to say, you know, you just have to tell them. Like, it's not vocational training, and then it's very useful, but we can get into that later. Okay. And is uh, getting a part-time PhD, is that usual? Is no. That a pos no. No. And everybody said it was impossible. And uh, But it, it is actually, I really... Um, learned from this that all of these things are possible but you have to create your own job so you have to put a different type of effort in so I also didn't apply on a regular thing I found it through my network and negotiated okay. the part-time position out of it okay. and were there any doubts also in terms of like your own position like in coming from a philosophical background and trying exactly to like create these opportunities for yourself did you feel like that was something oh wait like oh am I on the right track or something that um you um, thought okay maybe the conventional route maybe I should have stuck to that no exactly not for yeah. a second yeah. not for a second <laughs> I'm so grateful with the opportunities I had the only thing that I did really doubt was was the topic of my my PhD so this opportunity of doing this PhD in philosophy of economics it came very randomly and I knew I had to seize it because there's not that many PhDs in philosophy generally let alone like this part-time opportunity that's uh, sorry yeah. to interrupt but no that you get like a part-time PhD position that does mean that the university or something that it's funded it was Sometimes funded, sometimes not. <laughs> like okay. uh, I've had a gazillion contracts, but okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it takes some balancing, but it is possible. And then yeah, and then you were telling uh, about the oh the doubts, yeah. So I had to very quickly put together a research proposal, and I didn't know anything about economics so I just went to the Stanford Encyclopedia for philosophy. Of course, <laughs> what do we all do? <laughs> and uh, I found like this line of work in behavioral economics so I thought oh yeah that has to do with psychology you know something about psychology well just let's write it up mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's how I started and in hindsight I think I should have thought a little bit better about like what my PhD should be about um, on the other hand this was the opportunity I had to seize it yeah and uh, so you have your PhD you have your proposal and you're also working on Trive. Uh, yeah, the back then, it, um, it was actually the predecessor of Thrive. So it was a think tank called SMO. Okay. Um, and it was a think tank that was partly affiliated to the Erasmus University. And it was basically starting dialogues between entrepreneurs and society based on scientific insights. And so I proceeded from there. And there I set up various projects in sustainability and in healthcare. And, uh, and how did you know that that was the the kind of field you wanted to go into, like health? Or was that just because there was the opportunity there? Um, so what I always knew is I wanted to use the science for big societal problems. And at SMO, I got the opportunity to uh, start a new uh, yeah, department, let's say, what's now called the Thrive PhD Academy within Thrive. And it's a department that helps young researchers uh, make use of their their research and the first time I just found people on, all over the internet said hey I'm a, 
and young researcher, I would like to make more impact. Would you too? And they said yes. And then together we said, oh, let's work on healthcare because it's a problem. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. And do you feel like in doing that, you're also filling some sort of broader gap, like in the labor market or in also the position of researchers um, yeah. in, in being able to contribute to these big problems today or yeah. big challenges? I Absolutely. That's a good question. I think it's a huge gap actually at the moment. And that is because researchers really do not get trained to do anything for society, I feel. And the incentives, especially for full-time research personnel, is not they're not there. You have to publish like articles that nobody reads. <laughs> and that's how it works. And so I really wanted to try to, uh, yeah, how do you say it, like sort of enclose all of this academic talent that I could see around me and people who would have knowledge like from all different disciplines from like nanotechnology to, to philosophy um, who could really help solve these challenges with their academic skills mm. and yeah that's how we started to just figure out how can we make like yeah, this impact as a young generation. Well, I mean, so I guess this also relates back to the practical aspect of philosophy, right? So uh, I think you did mention this, but also in our correspondence, you seemed quite enthusiastic about, um, well, the the ambition of this podcast and trying to like bring forward, yes. you know, this uh, aspect of philosophy. But so you seem to agree that philosophy is more than just a study. Um, and would you actually say that philosophy also maybe in, in today's context is really best um, when it is combined with with right as you say the entrepreneurial mindset the entrepreneurial approach i'm wary to say best because i think there's different types of researchers sure. and different types of philosophers with different hats but i do think there needs to be a lot more opportunities for people to to do actually make that impact mm -hmm. and i think also for students it's very nice to see i think that that you you really can do stuff with philosophy and philosophy really helps. Um, but you also have to market yourself because people are not going to see right away what your value is. Yeah. So, um, but for me, there's, there's no doubt that philosophy in today's like super wicked challenges, that philosophy is useful. Mm. Like you think deeper, you learn how to analyze stuff. Um, but even the simplest things in, in government or industry, I think philosophy is useful for. So for example, writing an email like a good <laughs> concise email that convinces somebody to, to take some action like you can do that or if you're an entrepreneur you have to make many pitch decks or many presentations in which you pitch your product and you try to convince other people if you know how to build an argument you're very good with that so these things were really like helping me and helping the entrepreneurs in in selling their products it sounds super commercial like it was also for less commercial projects but yeah, so I think it's so fundamental. You get such great skills that you can apply them almost anywhere. Well, it's great to hear that you also, I think, you made the best of your program here at Leiden University. I loved it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so now, what is your PhD now on? Um, yeah, it is on um, uh, how people make choices and rationality. So what are rational choices? And... Um, Choice architecture, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the term, but choice architecture, the way you present choices that influence how people make those choices. So an example are nudges, another example are boosts, and they're all ways like defaults for organ donation that help people sign up more to register. Um, and what I look at is, oh, what is actually the evidence for these behavioral policies? What is the evidence for choice architecture that works? And then what is it about rationality that all people say that the evidence says that people are irrational decision makers but so is this also a challenge to rational choice theory or a, a contribution that is more um oh right um this is one step further i would say so whole behavioral economics is a it is challenge to um rational choice theory so they basically say people don't make decisions in that way but they're still very attached towards the normative underpinnings of rational choice theory. So they still say like fully rational choices would require of you that you think everything through like a supercomputer and so on. And um, that's, I think, why, especially in the popular literature and policymakers still seem to think like, oh, yeah, people make irrational decisions. And that's, you know, they're not they cannot even learn how to do this better so let's just nudge them or manipulate them in a certain way and i question a the evidence that's there and b the normative underpinnings mm -hmm. so that people are really irrational decision makers so so that's 
one aspect of what you're doing in your research, but also in the general realm of um, kind of the researchers that you're working with at Thrive Institute and um, many other places you're working at. Um, what do you see are some of the most urgent questions that um, we as researchers, as philosophers um, kind of face today? Um, questions in society or more like your next step for your career? Um, in society, maybe next up for careers, another, another, uh, another thing topic. we can look at. <laughs> yeah. I would say basically any question, right? From the post-truth, uh, mm. situation is not the best word to say, <laughs> but like the post-truth era that we're in now towards like why and how do we have to make the transition towards sustainability? Uh, who needs to make that tr transition, um, from evidence-based policy, right? As philosophers of science, you can look at evidence-based policy, which really is a trend now, mm -hmm. and see like, okay, but you know, what what does this require of the role of scientists, and what does evidence really mean, and does it always need to be like perfectly mapped to the research, or are there other, um, yeah, influences that that can play a role? Mm -hmm. So I would say every bit like philosophy is so fundamental. Yeah, you yeah. just learn how to reason and how how to. In some ways, it's like a way of life, right? It's not just exactly yeah, a way of thinking for sure. Yeah, but still, there seems to be like for a lot of philosophy students here, this 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 idea, like, well, for some of them, then like no one wants me because it's not really it's not really exact what I can offer. Mm. Yeah, that's kind of the sphere of the 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 career market, like. What am I gonna do next? Yeah. Uh, but you actually say, okay, there is value in philosophy. There's a lot yeah. of value, but that, like, how do you sell yourself is a different question, right? So I feel like in the moment you're hired, you can you can prove yourself. You can show that the skills that you have matter. But I think that very first step is very difficult, and I think their fears are partly justified um, because, especially at the big corporations, they're not gonna see your value right away. And that's why I always recommend to do lots of extracurriculars, like especially in the Netherlands, people are obsessed with extracurriculars. <laughs> so show that you're not just a thinker, but you also manage to organize projects and do things. Um, do an internship, maybe in something that is not philosophy related at all. Um, make time for that. Okay. And uh, in your own experience of finding an internship, did you find that hard or, or was that... Again, a question of marketing yourself and, and putting yourself out there. Um, it wasn't hard, but I think you still have to market it well. Yeah. Um, for me, I just found it through this Integrant, I think. Mm -hmm. which is, yeah, I think it still exists, but it's sort of this mediator thing. And I decided to go with a startup, so startup sort of foundation. And I think that is generally, in the humanities, is a, a way a sort of type of job that is completely overlooked mm -hmm. <laughs> by by job advisors and so on. So they look at governments, they look at journalism often for, for humanities, they look at uh, yeah some super big corporates, but nobody thinks, hey, here's this startup. But what I like about startups is that they're not so hung up on what specific profile you need to have. Um, many startups nowadays are social enterprises, so they mm -hmm. really try to make an impact for society. And you get to to try so many different things because in a startup there's always a crisis and you always need to wear different hats so you can explore whether you like you know marketing or more research parts or you really like being an entrepreneur yourself and, and building ventures so is that I, also what you did did yeah. you yeah 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 i had to try so so many different things and some things i liked and other things i didn't but um yeah, you have, you have, in a startup, you get so much responsibility right away. Mm. So you grow really fast and they're so open to your opinion generally. And you can even build like certain departments and things yourself, at least in my case. I think especially today, I, there's a lot of um, opportunities in the realm of startup. Also in, again, doing things differently, right? The circular economy, uh, yeah. um, very interesting opportunities there. So I, that's definitely great advice. Uh, to, to so would you advise to a student now like, maybe take more time to study yeah. and get and get you know go to go do an internship maybe at a startup instead of finishing i don't know at 21 yes oh 100% i know this is controversial because i think you have less funding than we had in our times yeah. um but i would still 
really try to do that and then get a little bit of a, an internship fee or so for that. Because what I've seen also with my peers is that some people really try to, to finish really early, but then they had zero experience. So they were so proud that they weren't delayed as students, but then they had two year gap sometimes in order to find like a job on the right level. Whereas I took longer for my studies, but then I, I lent, I, before I graduated, I even had a job and I also had my PhD and that really helped me. So yes, I would definitely advise that. And in terms of also students being in their studies right now, how, um, what would be maybe your best advice um, for them to make the best of their study right now, of their philosophy study? Just go to all the courses. Do they still have the <laughs> evening courses? <laughs> yeah, go to class. <laughs> Write your response papers. Like, <laughs> piss off a professor like Bruno Verbeek. Like he was. Uh, oh, he sends his regards. Oh, yeah, yeah nice. <laughs> yeah, I really like Bruno. Like he was like super, super cool mentor for uh, for me. Yeah, um, yeah, I would do that and then do the extracurriculars and really try to make the most out of each paper. Like I was a little bit of this, you know, super pretentious student. So I really wouldn't settle for anything less than an 8.5 for my master thesis, for example. Um, but I also, it taught me a lot because I had written like a first version, which I completely threw away and shredded and then started all over. Um, and that's what I like so much about philosophy, that you have to keep pushing and you have to learn persistent and yeah. And and did you do uh, like did you do networking within the university already? Did you find um. opportunities through certain teachers or was there ju- not so much in terms of although I did um, I don't know if it still exists but I took the Leiden Leadership Program yeah yeah which was an, uh, a very nice honors program for master students and that was the, the networking that I did a lot. But not so much academically, although like Bruno, <laughs> we were just talking about, he um, he advised me a lot on what it would take to do a philosophy PhD and was willing to think along with me because I had such a weird profile. And I think it's really good to find a professor who thinks along with you, like okay. not just your grades and so on, but like, who are you? What are you interested in? Like, what yeah. are you good at? Yeah. Yeah. And if you can find like such a person, that's amazing. Yes. But you had a weird profile? Yeah, I mean, just law and then <laughs> lots of extracurriculars and then starting at a master's and taking like an ethics 101 course after <laughs> I almost finished my my master thesis. I mean, that didn't make any sense. But, <laughs> but you here you are. Here yeah. I am, yeah. 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 <laughs> Still a weird profile, but... <laughs> but it works. Yeah, it I works. always say I study how people make choices, yet I am completely unable to make <laughs> any choice, as you can see, so... Yeah. And uh, how do you, because you do a lot, do you have stress or do you cope with time management or does it just work? Oh, to be honest, like in the beginning of my PhD and my my entrepreneurship life, I completely crashed. So I'm one of these burnout people um, because it was so hard to combine not just different jobs, but like very different types of focus. So in the entrepreneurship world, everything goes really fast, right? So, you know, you have these dopamine shots the whole time. And then in philosophy PhD, it takes ages before anything is finished. Like, and, and you have to have tremendous focus and concentration. And that's just not possible if you just have one hour here or one hour there. Um, and then after I went through that, I really learned to manage my time way better. So I'm overzealous time management, time boxer. (laughs) So I put every single task I have in my agenda, um, which I can recommend all of you because you'll figure out how long things take you very fast. And um, yeah, I try to to also work more with energy management than with time management maybe. So I try to figure, yeah, I try to figure out when am I I on my best? When do I need like the best focus? Uh, For me, that's between four and seven. And really schedule my way around that. And there's an app that I want to recommend. Okay. <laughs> like, this is no spawn. <laughs> and everybody always says, like, I'm in the business of, of selling all things, but I just get enthusiastic about it. The app is called Focusmate. Okay. I don't know if you know it, but it connects you randomly to somebody else all over the world. And you have 25 or 50 minute sessions in which you stage your goal. And then at the end, you st- check out and you're still on camera seeing each other work. And it helps so much because it's an appointment in your agenda and you just work very focused on like one or two tasks and that helped me survive the pandemic basically. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> There's many students there. 
Sorry? I never heard of it. Oh, no, me neither. Yeah, you should try. But I think so part of also the lesson with time management is that you know, it's okay to take your time, right? And for allowing yourself to develop in other areas of life than just Definitely for, for students, yeah. I would say. Like yeah. this time management I was talking about is really mostly how do I survive having all of the jobs and the roles that yeah. I have. Yeah. But I think as a student, indeed, it's really okay to take longer. Like mm-hmm. nobody really cares. And also bachelor, like explore, be curious, grades in philosophy don't really matter like maybe only in the masters really matters but i never had anyone who really looked at my bachelor grades that's for you yeah. guys yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so don't stress too much <laughs> yeah. stressing no um yeah so um now you have your you're d- you're still doing your phd yeah i'm almost when are you finishing? Yeah, that's that's the question. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I invited this question. Like, this is a question you should never ask. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> also, you will notice when you're writing your master thesis and people ask, are you done yet? Like, that's the worst question. <laughs> always. Um, I hope to be, be done in June, July. Okay. Yeah. So. And then are you going to... To, to continue in academics? Do you want to become a professor? Or? Not in the conventional way. No. So I'm still very stubborn in my... F- know the first thing that I had I always want to have this bridge bridge position Mm -hmm. so I don't exclude that I will still work with academia but I won't work from within academia and I won't pursue a a classic postdoc or professorship or anything like that so you're just going to create your own I'm still going to go on indeed with creating my own uh, own function yes so that's so interesting yeah I yeah, think we're all very much looking forward to yeah. <laughs> yeah. to being done or no to like, like seeing also how, uh, how you're gonna develop because yeah. oh, I no. think there's a new um, yeah there's just a new way of of doing philosophy of doing things of of um, engaging with the world and uh, I think yeah. with the other alumni as well we're gonna start to see um, a bit more of, of yeah just that yeah, yeah. that's I, I think this is the moment also right yeah this is the moment that that you're not like your parents probably had one job title but we're all slashies like (laughs) entrepreneur slash phd student slash blogger or whatever you are um yeah so i think the momentum is there and also the momentum i think is here in society for people who can think a little bit deeper and see things from a helicopter view and yeah yeah definitely i i i think there's a real need in society for for deeper thinking and uh, indeed the, the the bridge between the entrepreneurship and and academics. Yeah. So one of the things I also noticed when I started working with entrepreneurs, we had lots of conflicts because as a philosopher, you're trained as a critical thinker. <laughs> and so everything that comes out of your mouth seems negative to these people. And they're used to thinking in solutions, right? Yeah. And you just keep bringing on problems. <laughs> and so <laughs> you need to be very careful with how, o- yes, yeah. and yeah. how other people perceive that and then learn from the entrepreneurs to think constructively. Yeah, so I think if you have that, if you have the critical like problem showing sort yeah. of skills and you have like the constructive problem solving skills, then you have superpowers. Is there any overall advice now after graduating that you're like looking back? I would have said this to my just graduated Daphne person. Yeah, I would tell myself not to be so stressed. That's the first thing. So especially my master's, I was quite stressed with all the grades and all of these things and maybe sometime and I just try to get as many ECTS as possible and I feel like I should have taken the time a little bit more to explore uh, even though I did but not be so grade obsessed probably and not be so stressed about doing it right like all of my meetings were very insecure and um, you're learning you're trying and you should really approach it as such and meanwhile, we just say, yeah, keep doing your extracurriculars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, do that internship and, and really don't forget to enjoy. It's like, I, I, I completely agree that, that philosophy, I mean, I, I also didn't directly start studying philosophy. I did um, veterinary medicine first. Oh, wow. That's very different. That's very different. <laughs> and uh, and I, I really am happy that I chose to study this and I truly believe in it. But I'm also very worried about the marketing uh, part of it. Should we talk a little bit about how you market yourself? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So what I think is really important is that you don't write in your CV. You don't just write philosophy student. 
people don't get that. So you need to put a little bit of effort in on your LinkedIn and on your CV saying what it is that you learn at philosophy. So you can say, as a philosopher, you learn to convince people, to do argumentation, to think deeper about all sorts of things that we think are you know, normal. And we, then we think deeper and ask ourselves the question, but why is it like that? Uh, and this is helpful because. So always try to make the connection to what's in it for them. If you're applying somewhere, like what exactly can they learn from that? So you would say like, oh, I, I want to do this internship at a sustainability startup or at a government team, whatever. Um, and then you can say, well, as a philosopher, for a government thing, for example, it's good that you can write. So you're a very good writer. Uh, you're a very good analyzer. So you can you know, very quickly, especially if you took a couple of courses in philosophy science, you can very quickly understand um, different disciplines, scientific and non-scientific di disciplines. You can get to the core very fast. Um, you can present, right? There's so many things that you can do. So I would really highlight those and connect them very well uh, to the job that, that you're looking for. And I'm always happy to look at anyone's CV. So okay. this is also <laughs> an, an open <laughs> invitation to send me your CV or so. And I, 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 uh, just a warning, like the WhatsApp group has like a thousand, I don't know, hundreds of people. Okay, so then I need to make a business out <laughs> yeah. of it. But <laughs> we'll, be we'll see where, but yeah. where it uh, goes. Thank you so much. But um, And how did you know that, that this, because you were kind of stubborn or persistent in like I want this both. <laughs> I want both I want to be academic and entrepreneurship but a lot of uh, philosophers also go to work for the government or be a journalist how did you know like this is the I didn't actually I just ended up I just knew that I wanted to play that sort of bridge role and I just ended up working with entrepreneurs without coming from an entrepreneurial family or Leiden wasn't the most entrepreneurial city. So I had zero experience. I just ran into it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm so, so happy that I did. But in my role, I still work a lot with governments, for example, and I work a lot with academia. And so I feel like, yeah, I work with many disciplines. And for me, it doesn't even really matter where I work. I just really value the entrepreneurial uh, solution skills mm -hmm. a lot and also the critical philosophy thinking skills. Yes. And do you feel like you're making an impact? Like, do you get that from your job? Or yeah, I, I'm so yeah, I'm so happy every day. So first of all, because I I work on themes that are very important. So sustainability is a huge theme, but also diversity and inclusion, the healthcare that I was talking about. Um, but I also directly work with governments that have a problem, corporates that have a problem that needs to be solved. Uh, researchers from all kinds of disciplines who want to make their contribution but don't know how and so through teaching and training them I get to make that impact too so I get to help somebody set up a fantastic startup in sustainability I can help somebody um, uh, get a career in science communication and spreading the word about you know why we shouldn't be so polarized about uh, vaccination for example so I feel like Everyone I work with, but I also scout for that, is very mission-driven. And so either by working with them or training them, um, I do make, yeah, I feel I do make that. And how much of this do you feel you owe to philosophy specifically? Yeah, that's always so difficult. It's a combination, right? But what I do owe to philosophy specifically is very much... Uh, these basic skills, its they sound so trivial, but they're not. Right. Like the argumentation, the building, the pitch decks, being able to, I work a lot with researchers from all disciplines. The fact that I did philosophy of science um, makes me confident and also able to work with these researchers. And of course, we all make mistakes, but generally I can very quickly understand what they're doing. And that's really useful if you're trying to work together on an impact project. Yeah, because I think, I mean, you mentioned that, like, in terms of students marketing themselves and, you know, if you're writing on your CV, uh, like, I'm a philosophy student. Um, I think for a lot of students, yeah, they don't really um, maybe, or uh, at least I can speak for myself. I mean, I know that I wasn't quite sure of what I am getting out of a philosophy program. So these very basic skills of being able to argue, to present, yeah. to think critically, um, I think that's something else to maybe keep in mind for ourselves that, 
how yeah. valuable these skills be really confident are. in that I, yeah. I lead teams with so many different sciences both from the social sciences and from the natural sciences and never did i feel undervalued because i was a philosopher like i could lead these teams and they were happy with me and i was happy with them and so yeah don't undersell yourself and uh yeah just try also so already now during your studies just try work with other researchers try do these projects we will. Yeah. We'll <laughs> and and, and wh- what is next for you? Good question. So I do want to take a little bit of a sabbatical after graduating my PhD <laughs> for a few months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I, I think it's time for me to also travel again a little bit. But then after that, I'm thinking about doing something um, a little bit more with what my PhD is on right now. So with these... Um, uh, behavioral policies, but also evidence-based policy in general, maybe from a uh, from a government, um, because I've always, what I said, I always worked in startups. I've always been like, or I founded things, or I was immediately one of the more senior people, because that's how it goes in a startup. I feel now for me is the step to work in a structured organization where there's more senior people and where I can really learn from from them. And I think it's actually nice to start in a startup first and then do that because you make this huge like um, a development in terms of skills. So you develop seniority quite fast. Um, but now I want to see, for example, the government from the inside out and see like how high level policymakers are doing things. So do you think someone who goes directly into this government senior policy position tries to get into it to work for the government, they lack the... I think you would lack entrepreneurial skills. Okay. <laughs> but the question is also, like, not everybody has to follow my path, right? It, yeah. it is also really much about what drives you. And I like building things. So for me, that was perfect. But if you really like more to do the research for the government or so, then by all means, go go to work for governments first. And then maybe your extracurriculars, I, I think it would still be helpful to work for a startup, but you could also think about a think tank for the government participate in i don't know a hackathon or so organized by the government so you get a little bit that touch of feel um yeah well what they're doing it seems today also like there's a lot that governments can learn from entrepreneurs right and and back and forth like this sort yeah. of collaborative um dynamic uh definitely that yeah should yeah. hopefully we each have our flaws right <laughs> <laughs> so. but are you not going to miss the dynamics of entrepreneurship that's what i'm afraid of too (laughs) so but i need to try i think so at this point i need to try and i i hope i can do it part-time so i can still do my entrepreneurship activities next to it um or work with entrepreneurs or i think in the government what i notice right now there's many there it really comes um it's sort of trending to have evidence-based policy now in the government but for that they're installing sort of separate units so in many governments, you have behavioral insights units now at the moment. Working in such a unit that's also new gives you the opportunity to also build a bit more. If you would really go in like the very an already existing structure that has been there for years, then I think the entrepreneurial spirit will probably be a bit missing. Yeah, because that's what I'm kind of afraid of when I think about governments yes. and and like yeah. it seems very. Hi- also hierarchical like bureaucratic yeah but yeah. like you know there there's the boss yeah and they're the top like they're also the person who's been there the longest most of the time not necessarily mm. so the extent to which you can innovate and yeah 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 i think it really depends on your department and it's really but yeah yeah that's this i cannot this is tr- me no. trying to predict my future yeah. like <laughs> maybe i shouldn't say all these things because a potential future employer is listening i'm saying oh i'm too entrepreneurial for you guys but no. uh, yeah I'll, I'll keep you posted on okay. how that goes maybe. yeah <laughs> maybe we'll have you back here exactly yeah we'll be like spotting you on linkedin like what's she gonna do next <laughs> yeah well i'm also curious like uh, but i need some time to reflect on it like the yeah. past eight years have been so busy and i've been doing so many different things and you know i i need to think about what the next step is and really make sure that the next step is a good one to grow mostly so would you also say because like i think we get taught from like a young age that you already have to know how your path is going to go specialization yes specialization that's a bit of a boomer perspective right mm. like we're, we don't all become dentists or yeah 
I don't think so. I mean, I've always, I have to be fair, like I'm a super type A planner. So I really have my five and 10 years plans and I'm on schedule. <laughs> yeah. um, so for me, this bridge function thing was something that I had in my mind and I still have in my mind that I like to do this. I'm doing it. I will be doing it in the future. Um, but of course, how exactly you get there. Yeah, that's, that's you don't know which opportunities you're going to get. You don't know what happens in your life. So I would say you don't have to know it all. You can just try. But what philosophy students sometimes, I noticed, have this sort of uh, tendency to sit on the sofa and then think about what they think they can do with the rest <laughs> of their lives. And my strong <laughs> opinion is, is that is not working. You okay. will not find that out by sitting on the sofa. You really have to try. So, And then maybe you don't like that internship. Good, you can cross something off your list. Um, but you need to do something and okay. not just think about it. I think that's uh, very good advice. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think just for that marketing thing to get back at it, like really try to explain what's useful for the potential employer and really fill up your CV as much as possible with extracurriculars. But I would also advise against doing something just for the sake of building your CV. Like I've done that twice and it was terrible. Both. If you do just an extracurricular just because you think it looks good, you're not going to learn much from it. You're not going to have fun. Um, so we would still encourage to to find something that fits you and that you know you're happy with. So maybe that's tennis. In my case, it was a lot of for the tennis society. But I don't know. Even if it's collecting stamps, I don't care. But <laughs> something, something you like. Yeah, that you really like. And uh, do you also have some tips for negotiation? Like, hmm. what was important for you? Was it the amount of hours you're going to make, or your salary, or did you do you think about those things? Um, yeah, I did prepare really well for my first negotiation. I looked at the book Negotiating for Women, <laughs> okay. which I would also really recommend. Okay. Um, and I I looked where I looked up like what is the benchmark? So what is the average salary in this sort of industry? Somebody with you know a good university degree uh, can get, and then you put a little bit on top of that <laughs> and then you just talk your way through. And so what I learned from that is um, they said always keep keep some pocket money or keep some money in your pocket. So you start high, but you have to have various variables in mind where you can give in. So for example, maybe you don't really care how many free days you have. Okay, cool. Then you can say, you can start with asking for, I don't know, ludicrous amount I wouldn't <laughs> would recommend that for other reasons, but like a little bit higher, you can give away some of that. Maybe your salary doesn't matter so much, but your free days do. Okay, then you give you know you give in a little bit about the salary, um, and there's so many secondary benefits that you can negotiate about. So in the Netherlands, it's even possible to get a contribution for how do they call it again? Something like a representative appearance. And so you can declare up to 100 or 150 euros per month on uh, your clothes. <laughs> the disadvantage is that you have to keep your um, receipts. But Yes, my, my friend is a model and she actually... Oh, does. yeah. Okay, for, for her it even makes <laughs> more sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not here again. If you're building your CV, would you say that depending on wherever you're, you're sending it to, yes. you would change it and uh, make adjustments? Absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the biggest mistakes is to not do that. I think you always phrase things slightly differently. So what you try to do is also read the vacancy very carefully and then mark the keywords and then use those keywords in both your CV and your cover letter. Okay. Yeah. Cool, thanks. Because I think that might, yeah, if you're trying out different things, that might help. Um, another question I had was, so you said at the beginning that there was some funding, but not always. For my PhD. For your PhD, because yeah. I think money is a huge issue for a lot of um, for yeah. a lot of people trying to get a PhD. Absolutely. Because I know that if you want to set up a PhD, you have to look for funding, and and I know PhDers that are doing their PhD and simultaneously. Yeah, that's why I was doing getting funding, trying to get oh. funding. Oh, oh, that way, yeah. So they start as external PhDs. Yeah, what mm. I said, I had so many different contracts. So I've been an external PhD who was unfunded. I've been funded for three, four days a week. I've been funded for one day a week. So because I had such a weird starting position to begin with that I didn't apply for a full time PhD job, I I always had to. Yeah. So wh where would you start if um, 
if no funding is there and you have to fully find money somewhere yourself right if you're really determined it also de depends if you're really determined right so if there's no vacancy a full-time vacancy that you see fit to apply for i would probably try to find like a quite easy job <laughs> for three days a week and then do the rest do your research part-time as an external phd and then once you're in try to get your supervisor um to find funding for you i think many well, students in general, you feel like there's only one road to the PhD, and that is just apply for a full-time vacancy and scholarship and so on, and, and that's it. But I really think you can make things work if you do it part-time. But I made a huge mistake by working like 80 hours in a startup and then having no time for my PhD and being so stressed. And also the PhD and my work had nothing to do with each other, which complicated things. So I would recommend either choose a super simple job next to the side that you can easily do with two fingers yeah. in your nose <laughs> or like um, something that's way more related to your PhD and get maybe like um, uh, a company to pay for it. So I have a colleague who works at the Volksbank who finances his PhD on uh, the ethics of artificial intelligence. Oh, wow. Yeah, so these are options. Oh, cool. But as I said, and I know there's a thousand people in the group, but I just say no if I can. Like feel very free to come talk to me and you know see if we can find a good path for you Great. maybe i have someone in my network whoever yeah. yeah so the last one is networking i was wondering when you said you could do internships you can do uh, a minor and get to know other people w was there anywhere along your path because i read the zeef fikjes from joris leindijk oh yes and um how sometimes it. <laughs> it's um just someone you know who's willing to take a risk on you, someone in your network. But you have to sort of build that network. Um, and if it's not academic, how how do you then do that? Was there, I don't know, was there, did you know people? Was it friends, like yeah. friends yeah. of friends? I didn't know anyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think what, hap what worked for me really well is that I got um, this opportunity to set up what, what is now called the Thrive PhD Academy. And so I contacted people through LinkedIn to start something with me. So I basically asked them, like, do you also have this ambition as a researcher to make the impact in society? And they said, yes. <laughs> and then, you know, we just met each other. And then so you just went for it. I just went for it. Right, and cool. then I also don't network generally, also not with people who are not academics. I, I hate conferences or going to drinks and then talking to random people. I feel like I network in my own way and so can you. So I just have something in mind and I send them a message on LinkedIn say like hey that's a nice profile like i see you do this and that maybe we can talk and explore opportunities together yeah so you have to be more active because i can imagine i mean i was i grew up in the netherlands so it's a lot easier i i guess yeah. but i think internationals if you don't know anyone here you have to sort yeah. of start somewhere especially as a student yes so um yeah so the the advice is just to go out there and start yeah, drink as much send coffee. Send messages, people. Send messages to people <laughs> on LinkedIn. No, yeah, it, it sounds stalkier. <laughs> but, but it works, apparently. It works, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you would be surprised. People are very happy, actually, to drink coffee with you and talk about their career. Like, people are flattered by that. They want to help you. So use your likability factor and just go for it. And then if you really want to do the more conventional networking, you can go to these in-house days. Like, they still exist, I guess. Companies sometimes have these in-house days. I, there used to be a website called like in-house date. Okay. .nl or so. Just uh, drinks and then yeah, talk they're to open days yeah. at organizations where you can just go and see what the organization is like. So that is something you can do. But generally, I would say just go from. It's so easy to network if you have a mission. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I th I think maybe sometimes a lot of people think, why why would I do this or this is. Um, maybe my CV is not good enough or maybe I don't know um, a lot of things but maybe if you just try you'd be yeah. you'd be surprised how often people yeah. are willing apparently to, to talk willing. to you super willing yeah, yeah and, but you have to follow, I always say like always follow up also with an action point so what leaves a bad impression on me for example if somebody just wants to chat with me and then I don't know where the conversation goes and we ended up I'm like okay this was fun I want you to say like why you're, why you're here. Yeah, yeah. Have a clear question. Have a clear what do you question want? or, yeah. And then, then I'm very happy always. I think Nas wanted to do a PhD maybe based on the questions you asked. Yeah, but I, I, I just know that um, it's, so you have to find a PhD and then 
Sort of. Yeah. Sort of. That's what they tell and you. It needs to be something you like, right? Because ah, when you're finished, yes. there are PhDs out there, and it must. It you just you need you should be lucky to find one that fits you at that moment. Otherwise, you have to wait for it, right? Yeah, or like me, you just do something. And yeah, if you and really you like philosophy, financing, yeah, yeah, but you also, f- I mean, I felt like as long as you really study it, you get interested in, in it anyway. Um, so it also depends on you as the type of student you are, I think. I think you might be interested in more than what you think you are. And many of the vacancies that are... You know, they maybe look like they're very specific on a topic, but there's so much room to make it your own. Yeah. And and maybe be willing to uh, try out new things. Yeah. Because I think doing an, uh, studying at the university kind of makes you feel like there is only one. Especially path. as a philosopher, because it's yeah. so <laughs> academic. It's absolutely true. But also, I mean, many philosophy students are depressed. <laughs> many PhDs have uh, like lots of anxiety problems. Like you really have to know, I think, that you like it because, you know, it's not, you don't have this dopamine hit all the time like you would have in, in entrepreneurship. You just have to have so much persistence. So I'd say you really, if you yeah. hate writing your master thesis, then this is probably not for you. <laughs> Yeah, and it's like and it's a lot of um, individual work. Because Absolutely, it's four years at the very least yes. of individual work. So yeah. you should be willing and able. Willing and able yeah. also to get lonely. And luckily, there's this trend right now also in philosophy that you co-author a little bit more. Yeah, that can make things less lonely. But still, it is a very individual enterprise. But make it your own. I mean. That would that would be my overall advice of today. First, first get that bachelor. First yeah. get that bachelor. Well, that that is <laughs> generally good. Yeah, don't be too hung up. I would say on exactly what your profile is now. Just see like what triggers you in the news. Like what makes you really angry. Maybe yeah. you want to solve that problem and then pr- proceed from there. I don't. It doesn't need to be philosophical. Maybe you're in enthusiastic about wooden toothbrushes. I don't <laughs> care. But then that is the way <laughs> yeah. to start, right? I yeah. think I really believe if you don't. Maybe it sounds super millennial, but if you don't do anything that doesn't really drive you, it's not going to make you happy and you'll burn yourself out. But if you find something that really interests you, then, you know, it doesn't matter how much you work and you'll network with the right people and you'll find the right people. Yeah, That sounds maybe super American, but I really <laughs> feel that <laughs> way. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your advice. So um, in today's episode, we spoke with Daphne Treitz, who has combined her academic background with an entrepreneurial mindset to pursue evidence-based policy and research-driven innovation. From Daphne, we learned that philosophy has an integral role to play in developing basic skill sets for life, in dealing with contemporary challenges and shaping the future of our world. The value of philosophy in a modern context manifests itself in various ways. In Daphne's case, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, it comes forth through meaningful or purposeful entrepreneurship. So thank you very much for being with us, Daphne. Uh, And thank you, listeners, for tuning into Symposium's Beyond Philosophy podcast, where we welcome Leiden University's Philosophy Track alumni to explore what sometimes seems like the biggest question of them all. What on earth am I going to do with my philosophy degree? Not sit on the couch.